Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And for you particularly nerdy folks, this is where we move from the prologue into the actual meat of the book. Verses 1 through 18 set out the prologue. They introduce us to Jesus. 19 and following tell us the story. In fact, actually, he's going to jump in here and kind of actually mirror creation with a progression of days. John does a great job of telling us about time, and he's going to do that in these first verses. This is the word of the Lord. It is given for you today that you might hear God speak to you. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would bless your word again. This is not our word, it's not our book, it is yours given to us. It is given for the purpose, the explicit purpose of teaching us who you are, what you require of man, and what your good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And so we ask that through the ministry of your spirit, your word would accomplish those purposes. Show us who you are. Show us how we are to live. Show us your will. Work in us that we might be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You remember Guess Who? I love this. Right now, there's, there's two different groups of people in the room. Some are like, I cannot tolerate that band. And others are like, that's my favorite children's game. <laughs> I'm actually referencing the game and not the band. I don't enjoy the band either. The game, guess who? 
I remember getting destroyed by my younger sister, uh, playing it as a child, and then now playing it with my children. In case you don't remember, it's one of those brilliant little games, uh, children's games that's taught, uh, it's played to teach them how to use logic. Uh, Each person starts with a board of like 30 different or 40 different characters. Uh, I pick my character, you pick your character, and then we ask each other yes or no questions to try to rule out all of the ones until I can figure out what yours is. Does yours have black hair? No. Okay, well, all the black-haired ones I take out. Does yours have glasses? Okay, no, take it out. Until you can kind of rule them out. It's fantastic because it teaches them logic as they work through, okay, if they don't have black hair, what do they have? Great game. The particularly fun ones, though, are the ones where they've used their logic correctly and still get it wrong. Hang on. I'm really confused. Those are my favorite games because it actually shows uh, something even greater in the human heart than even our own logic, and that is our own presuppositions. When one of the kids gets a hunch, I think you picked this one. How just that simple assumption can blind them to the right answer. And at some point during the game, the right one will get flipped over and they won't pick that one and just continue to motor along until they are confused that they've got it wrong. A simple assumption, clouds logic, confuses the person. Where we are in John is actually a great little kind of illustration of guess who. In fact, they even almost ask the question in that way. Who are you? They're trying to figure out who a guy is. And when he's answering them, he's using all biblical logic. He's actually paraphrasing scripture for them, which they know. And they should, I mean, they probably memorize. They should be very familiar with. But their presuppositions have blinded them to the right answer. They go into a conversation assuming an answer, and when they get an answer that doesn't match, it kind of baffles them. So much so they ask a series of questions over and over, asking the same question. Kind of that classic crazy person response, right? Ask the same question over and over and over and see if we get a different answer every time. You don't. They're assuming they know the man they're talking to. But John has been setting us up, the reader, if we've been from the beginning of the book, to understand they're missing something. They're missing something very important. These first 18 verses, the prologue to the book of John, have been set up to show us a number of things kind of all ready to scream them to the reader. One, it's an introduction to Jesus. Jesus is God in flesh. He's the agent of creation. He is from before time. He is the mighty God. All of those mighty God things you read in the Psalms, they apply to Christ. This mighty Christ, this mighty God is rejected by men. This would clue the reader in. Let you in if you haven't picked up on it or you won't yet, but... John uses the term Jews in an almost universally negative context. 
It's not a positive term. When he's writing, the Sadducees have already kind of disappeared from the scene. They've already vanished uh, in church history. And he's left with the, ra- I mean, with the uh, Pharisees and with the Jews. And he uses those terms largely interchangeably, both for the negative. Not always, but largely. The point being, these are the ones that are the front runners of rejection. The Jews, the Pharisees, the priests, the Levites, the ones who are knowledgeable in the Old Testament should be the ones to receive him, and they are the ones who will not. In fact, this is going to be the first story of how they do reject him. But he introduces us to Christ, he introduces us to the rejection of Christ, but he also introduces us to the person sent to tell about Christ. So Christ, his glory, his rejection, and also the witness. And all of that kind of comes to a head in verses 19 through 28. As the witness interacts with the rejectors over the person and work of Jesus. All three themes all woven together like a little braid on the back of a little girl's head. It all comes into one central story. How will the witness interact with the rejectors? Will he continue to proclaim the glory of the Lord Jesus? We're going to look at specifically kind of three key elements of what a Christian witness looks like. These aren't the three only three elements. Right? You can go to a hundred other passages in the scriptures and you know, go all throughout Romans and look at what Christian witness looks like. We're just going to pull out three kind of principles from this text as to what Christian witness looks like. First, a righteous witness, a good, good godly Christian witness, uh, makes a big deal about the difference between our office and Christ's office. Makes a big, big deal about the difference between our office and Christ's office. Verse 19 pulls us into the story the first day of this first week of the book of John. And the testimony of John is coming out. Okay, so you can pick up. This happens uh, probably end of 26 AD, early spring of 27. We actually kind of know the year. It's kind of fun to think about. But this is happening end of 26, early 27 where John has begun his ministry and is getting kind of substantial reputation for it. He's doing things that would have been very noticeable, that would have drawn all kinds of public scrutiny. One, he's living like one of the Old Testament prophets. He's living kind of like a wild man out on the fringes of town. And those kind of people tend to always get noticed, even though they're not in the center of town. You may have grown up in a neighborhood that had that one kind of crazy person in the neighborhood. It didn't matter where they lived in the neighborhood. Every child in the neighborhood knew who the crazy person was. Yeah, don't go to that house. That's the crazy house. We had one. It actually was across the street from us, interestingly enough. So he's drawing attention to himself with his style of living. He's drawing attention to himself with the crowds that begin to follow him, but even more so with the message and practice of his ministry. His ministry was a ministry calling people to repentance for sin. And the time in which John ministers, repentance for sin was a very common theme, but it was a theme that was universally applied to Gentiles and not to Pharisees and oftentimes Jews. We don't need to repent. 
We're the ones who follow the law. We tithe on our little herb gardens. We t- we're so meticulous in our keeping the law. We don't want to work on Sunday, so we'll only allow ourselves to walk to and from temple or Saturday. We, we won't do anything. We'll, we'll just paralyze ourselves by overexpanding and misapplying the law. They had this externally conceived idea of righteousness, and they believed they were keeping it. And because they had, in essence, crafted a rule system they thought they could keep, it created an us-and-them mentality. We are the ones who keep God's law the way we understand it, and everyone else are the bad guys that don't. Therefore, when you teach or preach as a, a prophet or teacher, you would say, we are the ones that God loves, and they are the ones who need to repent. We are the good guys in the story. They are the bad guys in the story. And John the Baptist is saying, (laughs) "Eh, wrong answer. We all need to repent. Your righteousness, Jews, though you think you have managed it correctly, is actually unrighteousness. You cannot perfectly fulfill God's law. You cannot keep doing what you think you are doing correctly and pretend righteousness. And that would have been a shocking and offensive message to say, how dare he say, I need to repent. Much less when the Pharisees get out here and he actually calls them to repent. And then on top of that, he's baptizing, which we're going to talk about in the end point here. But he's, he's practicing something that would have been an even you know, greater red flag for his ministry. He's drawn all kinds of attention to himself by the nature of his ministry, so much so that the Jews sent priests and Levites. And the translation here loosely is, these are Uh, the upper crust Pharisee of the Pharisee, those that believe in their righteousness, these are the ones, the stereotype of those that reject Jesus. When you want to think back to those previous verses and it said he came into the world to his own people, they didn't know him, they didn't receive him, these are the ones it's talking about. And so they come out and they ask him who he is and they ask him a series of questions, some of which are obvious and easy and some of which actually kind of create a little bit of difficulty for us. The first one is obvious and easy. Who are you? And he confessed, he did not deny, he confessed, and it's interesting, John is actually uh, paralleling here uh, Peter's actual um, betrayal at the end of the book. (laughs) He's constructing language of the same. I am not the Christ. They haven't even asked that question yet. They walk out and they say, obviously, you, one of these is not like the others. One of these does not belong. You don't match everyone else in the country. All of the other Jews everywhere are behaving in this way, and you are behaving in that way. Who are you? And wisely, he knows exactly what question, and they're thinking quietly in the back of their minds, and so he just answers it from the beginning. I'm not the Messiah. The entire Old Testament has been telling us that there would be one coming who would redeem God's people. I'm not that guy. He he looks the part in some ways. He looks like an Old Testament prophet. He's generating crowds. He's practicing ministry. He might look the part in some ways. And he just stems and says, nope, not it. Not that guy. 
And you can kind of see them sit back and go, well, that was kind of not the answer we were expecting. We were probably expecting him to say yes, and that was not going to be a good thing. So they follow up and they ask him then. I love this in 21. What then? You almost kind of see him go, I'm confused. What in the world? Are you Elijah? And this is the part where it gets tricky. Because he answers them and says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. Which makes sense. Until you turn over to Luke 1.17, where the angel says that he is Elijah. Matthew 11.14, where Jesus says he is Elijah. And Matthew 17.12, where Jesus says he is Elijah. And I think... Most commentators agree. I think they're absolutely spot on right here. What he's doing is actually correcting a misconception. You remember that opening guessu illustration where if you get the wrong answer in your mind, you start asking the wrong questions? And so they bring with Malachi ringing in their minds that uh, Elijah would come before the Messiah. They follow up and say, "If, if you're not the Messiah, Are you Elijah, except what they're asking is, are you Elijah himself? Like, we know he didn't die. Is he back? Has he been reincarnated? Has he been given a newer, younger body? Are you actually the guy? Like, not the office, but the guy. And so he gives this very clear response. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not Elijah. He's absolutely telling the truth. He's answering their question. They're just asking the wrong question. And so they come back and they go to Deuteronomy 18 and ask again, are you the prophet? Uh, come on now. How, how about the guy that we at least can't even figure out? Is it the Messiah? Is it a, a, another person on top of Elijah? Is it one of these front runners? Are you that guy? And he answers again, no, I'm not the Messiah. And they just baffled. Who are you? We, we have to report to the people who sent us. We're like hit squad out here. We're not, you know, this is kind of part of the mob. They're, they're the bad guys. We have to tell the big boss that we found something and somebody. Who in the world are you? And his answer is, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I love that he is at the very essence of his ministry, the very beginning, making enemies. But, but he's delineating and making it abundantly clear. Christ is there and I am here. There is one coming who would save and there is no mistaking it's not him. There's no way that the Pharisees and the Jews walk away from this conversation and go, yeah, we found our guy. We're going to stick to this one. He's making it no uncertain terms that Christ is glorified. It's going to show up even more in a minute. And he's not. (coughs) 
And this is an important point for believers to remember and to contemplate in terms of their Christian witness. And I, I kind of put it from a pastoral. I'll use, I'll use pastors as an illustration. There is a constant and regular and frequent and always there temptation to confuse the glory of Christ, the blessings of His Spirit, the work of His ministry with the success of the pastor and the man and the person. There's a natural temptation. In fact, we're watching it happen all throughout the American church these days where we want to take pastors and to turn them into prophets of their own kind, turn them into these mini-messiahs. To ascribe all glory and wonder and success to the pastor himself. And John is providing this just beautiful contrast. You Pharisees have got it all wrong. You're coming to me with the intention of giving me glory, of giving me honor, of giving me a place of fame. You realize he could have said, yeah, I'm the Messiah. And his life might have been golden for the rest of it. Instead of being martyred, you know, not that long after this and being persecuted all the way up until then. Instead, he's making it abundantly clear where the glory actually belongs. What a challenge. What a contrast to be reminded that in the midst of ministry, in the midst of our relationships, in the midst of telling people of the Lord God, how there is a natural tendency for people to confuse the issue. I'll give you another illustration. This time I won't use pastor, I'll use the church. Let's say, and I hope this happens, well, the first part of it, not the second. Let's say we have a family walk-in that's unusually broken. Right? Their, their home life is a mess. Their health is a mess. Their, their finances are a mess. They're just a mess. And the church comes alongside them and embraces them and ministers to them and helps them with their finances, get their world in order. Helps them with their family, help get their family in order. Get their world in order. And that family, for the first time, feels the love and affection of the people of God. They feel like for the first time in their lives, things are going right for them. How easy is it for them to ascribe the glory to the church instead of to her God? To say, you guys are the best. You're the greatest. No place is ever as perfect or as wonderful as this place. And I I may actually believe that. But again, to confuse the issue. To confuse the glory, to confuse the difference in office that Christ is the Messiah, Christ is the Redeemer, Christ is the Sanctifier, Christ is the Provider. He just may use us in that process. That help doesn't originate from us. It's not done with our strength or success, and it's not blessed in our own abilities. It is God at work. Another way for us to kind of fall prey to this is to begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. To think of ourselves as irreplaceable. 
I mean, John really, I mean, he could have said, oh, by the way, you should keep me around because I'm, I mean, he is the most godly man on the earth, but I'm unique. I'm special. I'm great. Which he is. He's all of those things. But instead, he's going to just say, no, 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 no. Look at Christ. I'm not the Messiah. He is. I'm not the special one. He is. I'm not the irreplaceable one. He is. So in answering their questions, saying, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not living, breathing Elijah, I am actually going to fill his office, I'm going to fill his role, and I'm not the prophetic Messiah from Deuteronomy 18. I am a prophet, but not the one you're asking for. Right? These are not the offices you're looking for. You're looking at the wrong guy. I'm going to give you the wrong answer. Instead, actually, he does uh, delineate, the second thing, he say difference in office, but also difference in function. Verse 23, he gives them a very clear answer, which, again, they would have understood had they not been so preoccupied with the wrong understanding of, of, uh, you know, of the, the Messiah himself. They've got the guess who uh, presupposition wrong. He answers in verse 23, I am, who am I? I am, I'm the voice. I'm a proclaimer. I'm a herald. I, I'm not a body. I'm not a person. I'm not an officer. I'm a voice. I'm, I'm the one who's just, I'm sent here to explain. Crying out in the wilderness, he's standing in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the way for the Messiah. He's the one who would come, who would make everything ready so that Israel would hear and would reject a passage that had been associated with the function of Isaiah. He's actually clarifying, look, I'm not the guy you just asked about, but I'm doing what he said he would do. I'm doing what God said that man would do. I'm performing the function of that one. I'm proclaiming the message of the one that would follow. Verse 24 again tells us how much they're, again, the bad guys is helping clarify for those of us that hadn't read between the lines yet. They've been sent from the Pharisees. These are the ones who are disbelieving. And they asked him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And this would have been a, a significant question for them in terms of his function. Why in the world are you actually baptizing if you're a proclaimer, if your ministry is supposed to say something, why are you also doing something? It's a really, that's actually a really astute question. Doing things would be the kind of ministry that a Messiah would do. Why would you be doing this? And his answer is really impressive. I baptize with water, but there's one coming, implied dot, 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 who will baptize differently. I baptize a symbolic baptism. I'm giving a sign. I'm giving something that's giving a gigantic flashing neon sign pointing. Oh, by the way, there's something else better coming. The one who shows up later is not going to baptize with water the same way. He's going to baptize with the Spirit. 
And where I'm going to say, oh, you should repent of sins, he's going to send his spirit to enable that repentance and to cause that repentance and to regenerate hearts that produce repentance. He's going to accomplish everything that I'm just telling you about. My whole ministry, John is saying, is a a ministry of proclamation. It's a ministry of pointing to someone other than me. It's a ministry of showing he is the one who accomplishes and not me. And again, this translates directly into the ministry of the church. My sermons, what's my job in my sermons? Is it in my job description that I'm, I'm supposed to see conversions happen in my sermons? No, thankfully, really wise session, it's not. Is it in my job description that I'm supposed to make sanctification happen in my sermons? Really wise session, absolutely not. My task is to proclaim the scriptures that there is one who does those things, and it's not me. I can easily be replaced very easily. Car accident could take me home. You'd get another one. You'd be just fine. You can't replace the Messiah himself. There is no other Savior apart from the Lord Jesus. There is no other one that can fill his shoes. He is the great and mighty, the only way, truth, and life. He is the one. You see what John is doing is again pointing them to a greater one taking all glory that they might want to give to him and pushing it away. He's rejecting their glory. He's shunning their glory and pushing it to the Lord Christ. Difference in office, difference in function, and if it weren't obvious already, it becomes clear here, a difference in glory. Verse 26, I'm baptizing with water. It's a symbolic act. It's, it's showing uh, you know, physical action to show something happening on the inside. It, it doesn't accomplish anything. One stands among you. You do not know. He's Christ, he's coming. The one who comes after who I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm not even worthy to undo sandal straps. And again, you are reminded, you probably know this, but to pull it to the front of your brain again, all things feet during this era were nasty. Like, not feet today nasty. Not even teenage boy after soccer practice nasty, though that is a level of gross that should never be talked about in the pulpit. This is... No real public waste treatment system in a culture that is very arid and dry, so the dust picks up all of those particles, and then walking in sandals with no socks. You. Uh, when I was in youth ministry days, uh, MTW has a mission work in Juan Cavalica, Peru. Juan Cavalica at the time was the poorest town in the entire country of Peru. It is buried in the middle of the Andes Mountains. It takes like three and a half days to get there. It's the middle of nowhere. And so when we went in with the mission team, uh, it, you know, same type of situation. 
unbelievably arid, very, very dry, doesn't rain that often, dust everywhere, uh, and uh, no kind of public sewage. So it is a very, very common occurrence there to just see people going to the bathroom in the middle of the road or on the side of the road or, you know, during church on the front of the church building or kinds of all very odd, uh, you know, very odd setup. Um, very public. And the, the crazy thing is the result is the whole town stinks. I mean, you, you get out the train there and you're like, whoa, I can't handle this. I, last time I went to Peru was, I think, now 13 years ago. Uh, I cleaned out my office a month ago and found one of my little souvenirs, and it reeked. Over a decade later, this little, you know, trinket reeked because the sewage dust clings and it stinks and it's filthy and it's nasty and it's repulsive. And that's what would have been on all over everyone's feet. And so the idea of anything feet would have been just completely unceremonial. Like you just don't do this ever. And here he is saying, look, this one who's coming later is so great. I'm not even worthy to do that unlowly of a task. That thing that we don't even actually talk about in public because it's too nasty. That thing that like we don't even let our children do because it's so disgusting. We make the slaves do. And like not even the ones we like, the really, really bad ones. The ones who've been naughty, those are the ones that have to wash feet. Those are the ones that handle feet stuff. I'm not even worthy to be that to him. You want to talk about a statement of glory. This one that's coming, the one that you've mistaken me for, he's so grand, I shouldn't even be considered a slave to him because that is too good for me. He's too great for me. He's too marvelous He's too wonderful. He's too grand. You see what John is doing here. John the Baptist and Apostle John. Is taking all of those presuppositions that sometimes we're aware of and sometimes we're not. But usually in some form or fashion involve me being great. And he undoes them. In one quick little pericope, a couple paragraphs here, he cuts at the heart of all of them. And you see, this is the nature of the fallen human heart, to want to be the Messiah, to want to be great. Why do you think books like Harry Potter are so loved? is they take children that every child can relate to and they make them into lowercase g gods of their own. It makes them special and gives them value and makes them feel like they are genuinely great. Look at all of the fantasies that people involve themselves in from the most sophisticated to the least and in some form or fashion, they all involve me perceiving my own greatness and value. And John is saying the heart of a witness, pastor, preacher, faithful neighbor, sharing with your, your neighbor down the street, telling at soccer practice, the, the central element of a witness is to take that glory and point it where it belongs. It's not 
mine. It's his. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to end with this just very quickly. The central kind of tenet here, the idea that John is presenting, is a witness is one who is attempting to point glory where it actually belongs. And I might just raise one simple question. When we do evangelism or witnessing or telling others about the scriptures, whatever you want to call it, whatever format, whether that's teaching Sunday school or Christian kids or your own kids in the home or grandkids or whatever, talking with unbelievers, how often do we even deal with the idea of glory at all? I might suggest that most of our conversations that are centered on witnessing are actually centered on the person we're talking to. You need to believe the Bible for your own good and so you don't go to hell, which are all true. But it's missing. This whole thing is about Christ's glory. Look at him. Don't look at yourself. This is a conversation about you. It's not a conversation about me. It's a conversation about Christ. Look at him. And we wonder why our culture sees Christianity as boring today. Well, yeah, if it's all about me, of course it's boring. What an awful world to have anything structured entirely about me. I mean, I would love it for like 10 minutes, and then I would find it so boring, I would hate it more than anything else. At least now I have my discontent with how it is. Then I can't be discontented because I get everything I want. It's all about me. I challenge you with that simple challenge to contemplate how much of our thought process, how much of our world is actually genuinely sanctified self-absorption as opposed to looking at Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Savior, the Redeemer, the Mighty Jesus, thank you that though the world didn't receive him, rejected, he still went to the cross, saved his own. Thank you that while he came with no glory, low glory this first time, he will come with all glory the second. Make us ready, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.